Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 is where we'll be this morning. I really do. I can't encourage you enough to come back out tonight at 5.30 and enjoy some pie with us and enjoy hearing what God's done um, in folks' lives the past year. Really, I think it is my favorite service of the year as we gather together and able to share with one another some things we're learning. And uh, some of us are going to be able to praise God for the victories we've had the past year. Others of us are going to praise God for what we've learned through some trials and difficulties the past year. And uh, we'll look forward to be able to share with one another and it'll give you a good chance to get to know some people and uh, be able to hear and rejoice with others. The Bible calls us to rejoice with those that rejoice, weep with those that weep, and it's an opportunity for us to be able to do that tonight. So I really do encourage you to do it. Uh, 5.30 tonight, we won't take too long, but we'll take the right amount of time, right? We'll see. Um, however long we're here is the right amount of time, right? So, um, But Luke 22 is where we'll begin. I want to start reading in verse number 54. I want to catch you up a little bit on where we've been. If you are here for the first time this morning or missed a couple weeks, this is now the conclusion of what has been three years of ministry for Jesus. Uh, he started up in the region of Galilee, where we spent the really first nine chapters of the book of Luke, uh, studying the upbringing of Jesus, the first couple of chapters, the birth of Jesus, and then the beginning ministry of Jesus. We saw him uh, teaching, we saw him healing, we saw him performing miracles. And then he began in chapter 11 to make his way towards what would be the culmination of his life and ministry in Jerusalem. And Jesus has been making his way there. The past several weeks, we've studied what has been the last week of Jesus' life, known as the Passion Week. Jesus rides victoriously into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey to celebration and cheers and affirmation. And the tone has changed over the past several days. And Jesus has now been betrayed on the final night. He spends Passover meal with his disciples. Judas goes out to meet with the religious leaders, resulting in the betrayal of Jesus. Where we find ourselves in verse 54, that betrayal has just taken place. They have taken Jesus and arrested Jesus unjustly and are beginning the trial process. And what we're going to see is the ultimate rejection of Jesus, both by the religious leaders, by the governments of the day, and also by some of his closest friends. Okay, so let's go open our Bibles. Luke chapter 22, verse 54, and we'll read down to the end of the chapter. Verse 54, the Bible says, Then they took him. And led him and brought him into the high priest's house, and Peter followed afar off. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were all set down together, Peter sat down among them. But a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, This man was also with him. And he denied him, saying, Woman, I I know him not. And after a little while, another saw him and said, Thou art also of them. And Peter said, man, I am not. And about the space of one hour after another confidently affirmed, saying, of a truth, this fellow also was with him, for he is Galilean. They recognize his accent. And Peter said, man, I know not what you're saying. And immediately while he yet spake, the cock crew. Remember last week we saw this foretold by Jesus when Peter was coming in so confidently, right? That three times before the rooster crows, you'll deny me. And we see that played out just as Jesus said. Verse 61, one of the saddest verses I think we've studied in the Gospel of Luke. Verse 61, the Lord turned, looked upon Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock will crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. And the men that held Jesus mocked him and smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him in the face and asked him, prophesy who it is that smote you and many other things blasphemously speaking against jesus and as soon as it was day the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council saying art thou the christ tell us and he said unto them if i tell you you wouldn't believe and if i also ask you you will not answer me nor let me go hereafter shall the son of man sit on the right hand of the power of god Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, You say that I am. And they said, What need have we any further of witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. Again, journeying through the Gospel of Luke, almost done with this series. We'll pick up a new one in the beginning of the year. But we see Jesus in a really difficult part of the story of his life. This is Jesus being rejected. This is his suffering. This is him enduring rejection so that you and I can enjoy the acceptance of God 
He's going to be rejected by Peter, rejected by the religious leaders, rejected by those who will mock and blaspheme him, all so that you and I would get the acceptance that we do not deserve from a God that should reject us. And the question on the table for us this morning, the question for us to kind of wrestle with, is how do we respond when we're rejected? How do we respond when we're betrayed? How do we respond when people reject us? What do we do when we've been the people who have also rejected others? What do we do when we silence God, when we've rebelled against God, when we've blown it like Peter has in this text? What do we do, and how do we respond to those moments of failure? As we've walked through Jesus' life through the book of Luke, we've seen really high moments for Jesus. We've seen him ride into Jerusalem, welcomed as the king they're expecting. They're singing to him, laying palm branches in front of him, welcoming who they thought would be the victorious king that would set them free from the Romans. They would liberate them from this, uh, this oppression. They sang to him. But now, obviously, the mood has really changed. Sold out by Judas for a few pieces of silver. Been arrested in the custody of those that he's created. He's being interrogated by them. So the mood in the text has really shifted and changed. And we should know what's going to happen because Jesus told us what was going to happen. In Luke chapter 18, before he even rides into the city of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, he talks to his disciples and says, hey guys, this is, this is what's going to happen. You need to prepare yourself. You need to get ready. We're going to go into the city and it's not all going to be a celebration. We're going to go into the city and it's not going to be a party. Okay, They're, This is going to go bad quickly. I'm going to get arrested, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be beaten and mocked, I'm going to be handed over. He told his disciples what was going to take place. He's predicted this moment, he understands what's in front of him, that he's going to face rejection. Like if you followed these past couple of chapters, or you've maybe read it in your own time with the Lord before, the whole thing is just one entire act of injustice. It's just one entire wave of mockery and rejection after another. In our text this morning, we'll see him rejected by three different groups of people, rejected by the religious leaders who should have welcomed him and celebrated him, rejected by his disciples, rejected by the, the crowd of people who just a few days before were celebrating him. They're now turning against him. They have decided they'd rather have a criminal set free than, than him. And maybe you haven't related to Jesus at this extreme level of rejection. Maybe you haven't had someone that close to you betray you to the point of you being arrested. Okay, most of us in the room haven't gone through that level or, or intensity of rejection. But maybe you can kind of resonate with Jesus on a, on a lesser level. We kind of expect this kind of rejection. You know, you uh, get your courage up, young man, you ask a girl out on a date, and she says, instead of, I would be honored to join you on this evening, I've been waiting forever for you to ask me, she says, no. Right? You can kind of expect that level of rejection in your life. That's going to happen. Okay, don't let that keep you from ever asking, young guys. Okay, go go swing for the fences. If you strike out, swing again. Right, try again. But um, you know, it's going to happen. That kind of rejection. There's other kinds of rejection, that just like the surface level kind. There's also other kinds where it's you know a little more intense. Maybe you tried out for a team that you wanted to make, and they said you weren't quite as good as your mom said you were. Right, and uh, you didn't make the team, or you got fired from a job, and they kept someone that you don't think does as good of a job as you do. That, that kind of rejection is painful. That kind of rejection hurts. But there's a deeper level of rejection that kind of leaves a mark on us. It's the kind of rejection where there was somebody in your life that said they're never going to leave, and they left. The kind of rejection of someone that says, I'm only for you, and yet you find out they're also with someone else. People that have positioned themselves to be the ones who will love you and protect you and take care of you and encourage you and all of a sudden you find that they have chosen to betray you. And that cuts deeper than getting rejected for the basketball team, doesn't it? That cuts a little deeper than getting told no for a first date. That kind of rejection, that kind of betrayal. Jesus has experienced that deep kind of betrayal and hurt. Maybe you felt it from a spouse who has rejected you emotionally, spiritually. Maybe they're kind of choking your marriage out right now because they're refusing to talk to you, right? refusing to connect with you, communicate with you. That's a rejection that hurts. That's a rejection that leaves wounds. Maybe it's a parent who left instead of stayed. Or maybe they, they, a child that stopped responding to your calls or your texts, and they're rejecting you. 
Maybe it was a friend group that you used to be really close with, and all of a sudden you see them on Instagram, and they're posting pictures of the entire friend group without you, right? And all of a sudden you check your phone, and you didn't get the text, right? You didn't get the invite, and you feel that sense of rejection. One of the painful things about this text is we're going to see Jesus walk through some really intense rejection and injustice, but for me, one of the encouragements I found this week is this helps make sense of the world that we live in right now because all of us are going to be rejected. All of us are going to be betrayed to some level, and we serve a Savior who can sympathize with those things. We have a God who can understand the emotions of those things. In John chapter 1, verse 11, it says this about Jesus, that Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. His own rejected him. And it's going to walk through the text this week. One of the verses that I keep bringing up, even a couple weeks ago when we studied the uh, the, the Passover table was Isaiah 53, this prophecy of what's to come from Jesus, this really intense, beautiful Old Testament imagery of the lamb that's going to be slain. But Isaiah chapter 53, 700 years before Jesus was written, there's a text written for us, and Isaiah 53 verse 3 stuck out to me this week, where Isaiah is prophesying, he said, he will be despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. In other words, Jesus is the guy, when he walks down the street, people walked to the other side of the street. He was held in that low of esteem. And maybe you're in the room, you've ever you've wondered, how can I relate to Jesus? Seems like Jesus' life was pretty smooth sailing. Seems like Jesus was accepted and loved by those he came into contact with. In our text, we have a very different response of the crowd to Jesus. Maybe you're walking a road right now of suffering and rejection and betrayal. That's the path that Jesus is on in our text this morning. And as painful as that is, and as painful as the question is, I think the gospel lets us see a different question and a better question. The better question that I think the gospel asks in our text is this. Have you ever been accepted by someone who should have rejected you? Not just have you ever been rejected by someone, but have you ever been accepted by someone who should have rejected you? This week is my wife's birthday, and whenever I think of that question, I have one very clear answer that I, I outkicked my coverage a little bit, okay, in the marriage department, right, where if she was smart and she would have known what she was getting into, she would have never said yes to the question that I asked her uh, how many years ago. This is right now, 12, 12 years ago. You ever been accepted by someone that should have rejected you? If you've tasted that, if you've enjoyed that, that's someone that should that shouldn't give you the time of day. Yeah, all of a sudden has accepted you into their presence. You've got a little foretaste of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. We ought to have been rejected by him, yet he is accepting us. The gospel tells you that you and I should be rejected before a holy and perfect and just and righteous God. There should be no hope for you, no hope for me. For all of us in this room, we've either rebelled against God actively and we broke all the rules that he sets forth in his word, or you've tried to play some kind of religious game and religious rituals and rejected the grace that Jesus has to offer to us, and we try to make a way on our own. Either way is a rejection of God. Either way is a path that leads to damnation. And the word tells us that from that, there's condemnation that we receive from the Lord. What we get in the gospel is not condemnation or damnation, what we get in the gospel is his acceptance and his forgiveness and a, and a newness of life and his welcome at his table and his ongoing mercy and grace and love and a relationship with Jesus that will never end. That's not predicated on my performance, but is entirely rooted in what Jesus does in these passages before us. There's no greater news than that. Well, what's the whole thing about? This whole text is about Jesus who takes complete rejection that he did not deserve by mankind so that you and I, the broken, the needy, the sinful, the selfish, the weary sinner can be completely accepted by a perfect and holy God. He endures rejection so that we can enjoy acceptance. That's what's happening in our text before us this morning. And so let me just tell you, why that matters, I think, for us in 2023. A lot of us are walking through times of pain right now, suffering, and we're asking questions like, why would God let this happen, or what am I supposed to learn? And I think a good reminder for us in times of suffering and pain is that Jesus' God's own son was not exempt from suffering and pain. 
that God allowed these things to happen to his own son and Jesus Christ lays before us this morning an example, a pattern for us to follow when we're rejected, a pattern for us to follow when we're suffering. But I think it also matters to us this morning because it shows what great length God went to to rescue us. I love that song, Jesus Thank You. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, this contrast of story that Jesus drank the cup of wrath for us so that we could be welcomed. Jesus spares no expense to ransom us back. We see the great lengths of which Christ endured. It's beautiful. It should create in us worship and passion. And then finally, I think this passage should give us a word of hope. I want you to hear it. Because everyone in this room, you will have a moment like Peter had. If you're wondering, is my worst behind me? My worst sins, is it all in the past? I have good news and bad news. Maybe, but maybe not. Your blow-it moment could still be coming. (laughs) Your bad news could still be around the corner. I keep telling myself I'm beyond stuff that I'm not beyond. You ever find yourself that? Ah, I'm good. I'm really glad I'm past coveting. And all of a sudden, oh, maybe I'm not, right? Oh, I'm really glad God gave me the victory over this. And then I'm hungry, I'm angry, I'm lonely, I'm tired. And all of a sudden, temptation pops back up. It can still be ahead of us. We see something ugly in our hearts again and again and again. And I just want you to know that if you find your place in a moment like Peter finds himself, there is hope. There's hope based on what Jesus has done for us. Hope based on what Jesus does for the person who absolutely blows it, rejects him in a moment of weakness. And we'll start there, okay? The first rejection we'll see is that Jesus is rejected by Peter. Rejected by Peter. I love Peter, man. I, I really do. I love following along with the story of Peter. He's a, he's a pretty main character for us in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I find a lot of similarities and personality between myself and Peter. We like to call Peter the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, right, that he speaks before he thinks sometimes, and he's, he's passionate, he loves Jesus, but he oftentimes oversteps a little bit and has to walk some things back. Um, anybody else like that? Maybe you're married to someone like that, right? Um, that you're, you're there, uh, hey, you probably shouldn't have said it quite like that, right, um, where you kind of walk back some of those things. Um, Peter's really relatable for me. I mean, how, how can you not love this guy? He's this blue-collar, brash fisherman says things, has to say, I'm sorry for what he said. But there's no way that you can read your Bible in the New Testament and see anything other than the high moments that Peter has and the really low moments that Peter has. He has these moments of victory and these huge moments of wins. This guy nails it so many times. You guys remember when Jesus preached a sermon that was really kind of weird and hard? He preached a sermon about how if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in the kingdom, and everyone else is like, whoa, I'm out. And Peter's like, bring it on, man. Like, I'll do whatever it takes, right? I'm with you, Jesus. And everyone kind of walks away, and the, Peter, uh, Jesus asks Peter, hey, Peter, are you going to go too? And Peter responds, I, I believe you're the Savior. You have the words of eternal life. If those are words of eternal life, where else am I going to go? Right? He sticks it out. You remember there was this controversy about who Jesus was. Is he a prophet? Is he a, a, an Old Testament leader? Come back to life. And Jesus asks Peter, who, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're, you're the one that I've, we've been waiting for. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm, I'm building my church on you. That, that's a pretty solid moment, I'm saying. He's got some big wins Peter has had. But out of the same mouth of such beauty and correct theology has come out so many misses. So many misses. I mean, he's had some lows, okay? And this morning in our text, we're going to see the lowest of lows. Where he denies even knowing Jesus. First thing we're going to see, look at verse number 54. It says, then they took him, Jesus, and led him and brought him into the high priest's house. So there's going to be a trial process for Jesus when we're studying over the next couple of weeks together. The, basically, uh, trial by religious leaders and authorities of Jews, and then by the Roman governmental authority. So this is the high priest's house. This is where the religious leaders are going to kind of figure out what they have to do with Jesus. So he's brought there, and Peter, verse 54, follows afar off. So he's kind of keeping his distance, but he's following the crowd. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall, they were all set down together, and Peter sat down among them. So here's this, here's this scene change. Jesus goes from the Mount of Olives to the high priest's house. Peter is kind of following along with them. That Jesus goes into the house where he's going to be interrogated and, and beaten um, inside the high priest's house. There's a little fire that they build outside in the lawn, basically. And Peter's sitting down in the lawn, warming himself at the fire with all these other people. 
previous to this scene, Jesus has just told Peter, hey, Peter, I'm praying for you because Satan wants to have you. He wants to sift you. He wants, to, he wants your faith to fail. I've been praying that you would uh, you'd be strong, be praying that you wouldn't fail. And when you do fail, I'm praying that you'll be restored and that you'll be strengthening your brothers. Then Peter says, yeah, I'm in, right? He says, by the way, Peter, tonight you're going to deny me three times. It's not going to happen, Lord. Not me. That'll never happen. I am a ride or die. I am in. I am all, all my chips are in on you, Jesus. I will never leave. I'll never go anywhere else. I'm all in. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll cut somebody, and we see that he does, right? I'll, I'll swing at somebody, and we see that he does. Doesn't have great aim. He chops the guy's ear off, but he swings, right? He's in with Jesus. Peter went from fisherman to Navy SEAL like that, right? Got my swords. I'm ready to go. I'm with you, Jesus. I see so much similarity in my own spiritual walk with Jesus. I'm in. All right, pray with me. What's Peter doing? I'm in, Jesus. I'm in. I'm here. I'm with you. Pray with me. Napping. Jesus says, Peter, this is going to happen. Next scene, he gets arrested by the religious leaders, and Peter starts slowly following along, listening, watching, figuring out what's going to be taking place with Jesus. They got Jesus tied up in the other room, and they're, they're beating him. They're interrogating him. They're you know, trying to figure out what Jesus has to say to defend himself from the accusations. And the scene starts to shift to Peter of, is it going to be true? Will he deny? And if he does, how will it happen? He's surrounded literally in this moment by people who aren't on Jesus' team, okay? He went from the upper room with everyone on Team Jesus to the fire outside with everybody on the anti-Team Jesus, okay? Everybody opposed to Jesus. He's vowed, I'm going to be faithful to the end, Let's see what's going to happen. Verse number 56, a certain maid, that basically means a teenage girl, beheld him as he sat by the fire and looked upon him and said, this man was also with him. Uh-oh, right? Hey, you were with him. What does Peter say? Yes, I was. I'm proud of my Savior. I love my Lord. I'm with him. What does he say? Woman, I know him not. After a little while, another saw him. And said, you are also of them. And Peter said, man, I am not. And about a space of an hour after another confidently affirmed, saying, of a truth, this fellow is also with them, for he is a Galilean. He talks a Galilean. He's dressed like a Galilean. We know he's not from here. Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. I don't know what you're saying. Well, surprise, surprise, this went just how Jesus said it was going to go. Peter gets around a teenage girl. He says, you look like one of those guys that was following Jesus. I don't know who Jesus is. I'm not one of those disciples. I have no idea what you're talking about. And then it gets worse. You ever been a part of a fight or an argument where you wonder, is this going to get better or is it going to get worse? Right? Like we're, we're, at a, we're at a heating point. You're kind of wondering at this point, is this going to improve over time or is this going to continue to go downhill? And this one just gets worse and worse and worse. It's a train wreck. The Bible says he, gets, he rejects Jesus again. And then an hour goes by. An hour. He could have thought. Okay, I'm at two, <laughs> right? Uh, he said I was going to go. He said I was, this was exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. I've already denied him twice. He could have had a moment where he came to his sense. He could have had a moment where he repented and said to the t- teenage girl, you're right, I know him. He's changed my life, right? He had this moment. He had a whole hour to turn back. And then somebody else finally brings it up and says, hey, are you sure? Because you, you got a country accent. You sound like you're from the same part of Israel as him. You got a a dialect to your voice that sounds like you're from Galilee, and he denies him again, double downing on his his rejection of Jesus. Look what happens, verse number 60, and immediately while he yet spake, the cock crew. Imagine this moment. Jesus told you this is what's going to happen. No, Jesus is not going to happen. And then it happens, and look what happens, verse 61. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. I just, I cannot imagine what that moment would have been like. Jesus is being, we're going to see he's being beaten. Peter can see him. He can see him. And he's denying him. Jesus turns in the middle of his interrogation, in the middle of his beating, and locks eyes with Peter. And at that moment, he knew. Verse 62, Peter went out and wept bitterly. This is the, this is the lowest of the low. For Peter, this is the biggest fail. This is Peter's worst night of his life. 
locking eyes with his Savior as he rejects him, as he denies him. That's the kind of shame you would feel, trying to warm yourself by a fire while your Savior and your friend, your teacher is being interrogated and beaten in the room right across the courtyard, and he looks at you while you deny him. He looks at you while you break his heart. His response is appropriate. He weeps. He's guilty. He's been unfaithful. He's sinned. His heart was prideful. His lips were dishonest, and he's done the thing he said, I will never do. I don't know about you, but it is so easy to come to this text and be like, you know, if, if I was there, I never would have done that. If I saw Jesus, oh, I would have said, yes, that's my Lord. Yes, that's my Savior. Yes, that's my teacher. Yes, that's, that's my master. Uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus has been so kind to me, I would be so faithful. Would you? Would you? It is so easy to look at Peter and say, how could you? But I wonder if you've ever been in a place similar. I wonder if you've ever been in a similar situation, and you've done the thing that you told God you're never going to do again. I wonder if you made a promise to God that you broke, a vow that you made to him. Maybe it's when you stood at a marriage altar, right, and made a promise to the Lord. This is why you know, we make vows not just to one another. We're making vows to, to God, right? These are promises. And then years go by, and it goes distant from each other, and you go critical and bitter and angry and nasty at each other, and we break our vows to the Lord. I wonder if you ever told God, I'll never go back. I'll never do that thing again. I'll never, you know, sin in that way. And then you took the drink again. You looked at the picture again. You pulled up the website again. You placed another bet again. You used your words to gossip again. You responded in anger and envy again. Maybe I'm the only one who's ever said, God, I, I know I did it, but from here on out, I'm going to do it right. From here on out, I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to be an intentional dad. I'm going to show up. I'm going to be present. I'm going to disciple my kids. I'm going to invest in my kids. I'm going to, I'm going to you know, pair that with the gospel. I'm going to be gentle, but I'm going to be stern, and then bedtime happens. Maybe I'm the only one, but that gentle but stern approach sometimes goes out the window, and it turns into that anger and wrathful approach, right? I'm not going to do that again, and here I am again. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've even told God, God, you can send me anywhere. You ever done that? God, you can, you can call me to the mission field. God, you can, you can do whatever you want with my life. Maybe it's in a worship song where we hit that one chord change. You say, Jesus, take it all, right? Uh, whatever you want from me, you can have. Do anything you want in my life. And then you're sitting at work around a lunch table with people who are having conversations. They say, hey, don't you go to church somewhere? No, I'm thinking about it, maybe. Uh, I'm still kind of investing in some things, thinking it all through. I'm wrestling with things right now. We dodge the question. We shirk away. We shift the conversation somewhere that won't offend people. Because I don't want to get into any kind of conversation that might be divisive. I don't want to offend this teenage girl who's at the fire. She might not like Jesus. We can all shift and prioritize it out of an act of love when really it's cowardice and fear. We do this. We have these Peter moments. We get silent. We want to get bold in church, don't we, man? We want to sing. We want to praise. We want to call each other and encourage one another. Oh, man. Sometimes we get around our non-believing coworkers and neighbors and teammates and friends, and I got nothing to say about Jesus. There's an opportunity for me to pray for somebody that I, that I know that's a friend of mine, and I'm afraid to offer that because I don't want to get rejected. I don't want to be made fun of. I don't want to be mocked. Oh, I'll never do that. Oh, we sometimes... When we need to get in those positions of never. We need to be really, really careful. Sometimes that's when the temptation comes at us the most. This past week, I met with a guy and I asked his opportunity to share this, but he made some decisions in his life that things that he said he would never do before, he did. I'll never do it again. And then guess what he did? And he, he messed up, and it's not a good space that he's in. He's fractured some really important relationships in his life. We sit together, he shares things like I'm ashamed and I failed. I feel like I failed God, I feel like I failed you, I feel like I failed others, I failed my family members. And this is a quote from what he said to me. He says, I don't understand how God could use this in my life. That's Peter right here. This is the worst day of his life. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I denied him. What do I do? What's the gospel say to a guy like that? In that kind of night, in that kind of day, where you know I just, I messed up. Not, I messed up big time. 
what would I would do, and I would share with you the same thing I shared with him. Go to John chapter 21 from the story of Peter. Jesus, after going to the cross and paying for the sins, including Peter's lies and deception, are paid for by his Savior on the next day. He resurrects from the dead, and he's sitting down at breakfast with the same disciples who rejected him. I don't know if you guys remember this scene, but Peter's there, and Peter comes to have this conversation with Jesus. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. All right, then uh, give some money to the church so you can pay back your spiritual debt. Right? Don't worry, I'm not getting weird on you. That's not what he said. Right? Sometimes we do those things, don't we? I fall short, then I'm going to do some grandiose action of spirituality to somehow earn back the favor of God that I lost through my sinfulness. If I do something good, it outweighs and erases the bad, right? What do you say? If you love me, go and feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. If you love me, feed my sheep. Three times, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? I think it's three times for three denials. Jesus pursues the guy who blew it. When they locked eyes in the courtyard, I don't know if Peter ever would think that they would lock eyes again. But they sat there at breakfast together, and Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Jesus shows up resurrected, nail holes still in his hands, and he looks at Peter and says, guess what? Your failure is not final. I don't condemn you. I was condemned for you. I came, I lived the perfect son of this world because you couldn't. I stepped into rejection so that you could be accepted by my father. And by the way, Peter, I'm not just letting you into heaven one day. I want to use you to show heaven to other people while you're here. I want to use you to declare the gospel and demonstrate the gospel. And you say, that's crazy. It is crazy. Because no business owner in here is going to take the biggest loser of an employee you have and say, you know, you're the CEO of this company. We wouldn't do that, but Jesus did. To the guy who blew it to the millionth degree. He says, Peter, I've got a purpose for you. We wouldn't do that, but Jesus did, and you should be happy that he did. Because who's best to talk about the scandalous grace of Jesus? Who, who best to talk about the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus than a man who's tasted it and experienced it and enjoyed it and been transformed by it? That's why Peter is the guy for the job. That's why he's going to be the guy who's going to preach at Pentecost. It's not his strength. It's not his ease. It's not his intellect, obviously. It's not his theological training. It's not his, his oratory power. It's not a spiritual resume that he has. It's the fact that he has been broken before a holy God. He has wept over his sin, wept over his insufficiency, and enjoyed the grace of being accepted and forgiven by Jesus. And Peter, by the way, you study the book of Acts, he continues to kind of limp forward all the way to glory. There's all kinds of stories you can do about this brother. He just keeps on limping. He just keeps moving forward all the way home. By the way, fast forward just a couple weeks from this point, a couple months from this point. You go to Pentecost. This coward who denies Jesus to a teenage girl gets filled with the Holy Spirit, gets restored by the grace of God, gets transformed from the inside out, and he preaches boldly. 3,000 people get saved in one day. The early church explodes with growth, and Peter becomes an incredible pastor and leader and preacher and missionary. He was saved by God's grace, transformed by God's grace, became a messenger of God's grace. Say, so Andrew, it feels like you're talking about this a lot. Why? Well, first of all, I think this is, you're looking at, in my mind, I, I am a Peter. When I have blown it so many times, so many times, there have been so many moments in my life where I thought, well, there's no coming back from this one, <laughs> right? And I, I think Satan's trying to convince me over and over and over again of, Andrew, why don't you just kind of move away and step aside? Because there's got to be someone who's just a little bit more put together spiritually than you are to do these things, to share and show the love of Jesus. I, I, I'm glad you're going to heaven, Andrew, but I think you should kind of sit this one out for a little bit until you get a little bit better at this. And I see there's so many people in the church today, people who are still kind of playing that game. Yeah, once I'm good enough, yeah, once I really get this, my act together, then, then Jesus wants to use me. But maybe you're just a person still in process, becoming more like Christ, while simultaneously being called to share and show the love of Jesus now. Both of those things can be true. I am a broken, sinful man. God has a purpose and mission for my life. Both of those things can be true. 
And if we keep waiting until we get it perfect, you're going to be waiting until you're in heaven and there's no opportunity to share Jesus with anybody because everybody there already knows, right? Right now, you can authentically limp in the best version of spirit-controlled empowerment that you have, trusting that the Savior is perfect even though I'm not. There's something for me to do. There's a ministry I'm called to. There's an opportunity for me to share and show Jesus. This is the hope of the gospel. <laughs> you say, well, I'm glad that was for some people my week. I was actually a pretty good Christian last week. Well, maybe last week wasn't your week. Maybe this week's your week. Right? Maybe you're going to get around the Thanksgiving table with that one uncle who has different politics than you, and you're going to blow it, right? And you're going to ruin Thanksgiving for everybody, right? We're all, it may not be this week. It may be next week. It may be the week after that when you blow it, Okay? Be real careful when you start uh, saying, it won't be me. That's not going to be my story. Well, it's David's story, Moses' story, Peter's story. Seems like the Bible has one perfect person, and that's Jesus, and everybody else has a couple moments along the way. Okay, you're going to have some of those. When you start saying, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be Peter. We've all heard that before, okay? Be careful. So Jesus is rejected by Peter. Secondly, we see Jesus rejected by the mockers. By the mockers. So again, there's this change. The text, the, the the lens of the camera goes from Peter sitting by the fire, and it pans over to Jesus in the interrogation room. Verse 64, sorry, verse 63 says, "The men that held Jesus mocked him, and smote him. They're hitting him. They're beating on Jesus. They blindfolded him, hit him in the face, and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that hit you?'" And many other things, blasphemy, they spoke against him. So the men, they're holding Jesus in custody. They're beating him, and they're ridiculing him. They're mocking him. These guards invented a game for the prophet, put a blindfold over his face, and punched him in the face, and said, tell us who hit you, Mr. Prophet Man, right? They're blaspheming Jesus. They're mocking Jesus. You can tell us all that God's doing in the world, big man, so why don't you declare who hit you, right? They're making fun. They're mocking. They're ridiculing. Now, they're probably in the habit of mocking prisoners like this, but there's one difference between all these other prisoners and the prisoner they have now is the one they have now absolutely deserves none of it. Jesus deserves the highest of honor and praise and worship and glory and exaltation, and yet they've got him tied up in a corner, blindfolded, beating him. It's unjust. It's wrong. Painful for us to watch and to see what has Jesus done to deserve this kind of treatment? You want to ask these guys, what did he do, right, to get punched in the face? What did he do to be mocked and ridiculed that, oh, he fed the hungry? Uh, the, the, there was these people in town that were held captive by a demon. You think about the implications for a community when someone's demon-possessed. That makes everyone's living situation a little less nice, Right? Like if everywhere you go, there's the demon-possessed person that's following everybody around, making everything a scene, making everything crazy. Jesus comes in, brings liberty and freedom to this individual. The neighborhood got better because Jesus showed up. What did Jesus do to deserve this? Oh, he cared about the marginalized, and the, he protected the children. He taught truth about the scriptures. He welcomed Jews and Gentiles together. What did Jesus do to deserve this? Oh, he forgave the guilty. He stood up for the woman who was caught in adultery. What did Jesus do to deserve a a beating at this level? He didn't deserve any of it. He did nothing. He hasn't broken laws whatsoever. He's done nothing wrong. And so what we see in the text is an absolute act of injustice. But there's an encouragement here for us as well. Because guess what? There's going to be times when you walk through seasons of injustice. There's going to be times where you walk through a, a, a moment of life where you're giving your absolute best, but you're receiving the absolute worst. You were doing everything you can do to bless this individual, this person, this employer, and you were receiving the opposite kind of response. Nothing that I have done warrants the tone I'm receiving. Nothing I have done warrants the shame or the slander or, or the betrayal of what this person is saying about me. I haven't done anything to this person. I've loved. I've kept my side of the promise. I did what I was supposed to do, and yet someone is treating me in a way that I don't deserve. It's injustice. First of all, I want to communicate that's not Okay. Okay, if you're in a situation, you need to get out of the situation. You have freedom scripturally to get out of the situation. You set some boundaries for yourself. If there's people bringing harm or, or danger to you. But I also want you to know that there's an example for us in Jesus. Jesus isn't some distant, disappointed life coach. 
who lives in this ivory tower of perfection looking down at everyone who falls short. You ever had like a personal trainer who was so good at everything and just looked at you with such disappointment, right? At one point, I signed up for this free trial of some online program where they're going to send me workouts to do, and they're going to keep you accountable, right? I've never met this person before in my life, and you're going to ask me this stuff? Get out of here, right? Uh, so I'll send you an email. Uh, Andrew, what did you eat this week? Delete. <laughs> Delete. I'm not, I'm not answering that. Why? Because you're not going to have anything positive to say back to me. Miss Lady that eats all the perfect foods, right? There's a pile of my kids... <laughs> candy right next to my chair if you want to know what I ate last night, all right? Like, send you a picture. You can judge me from your, like, that's some of the, how we envision Jesus. I'm going through stuff. I'm going, I, Jesus doesn't understand. Oh, Jesus completely understands. You're going through a season of injustice. I don't know of any more unjust act than we're going to see played out over the next several weeks together. Deserving of nothing like what he's going to receive. Jesus has walked the road of rejection. He's heard words that cut. He's locked eyes with someone that's betrayed him. I want to encourage you, read Isaiah 53 again. If you're going to spend some time this week studying the sacrifice of Jesus, it's going to talk about how Jesus is a sheep led to a slaughter, and yet he remains silent. He doesn't open up his mouth. What I'm saying is that there is an opportunity for you and I when we get sinned against, and I'm not saying if, I'm saying when you get sinned against. Okay, when you get cut off in traffic, your Wi-Fi goes down, right? It's the attack of the evil one, right? Your barista gets your little Starbucks mobile order wrong. We lose our minds sometimes, guys. We lose our minds. And there's a temptation when our, when our flesh gets poked. What? I want to poke back. You cut me off, I'm going to cut you off. You honk at me, I'm going to honk at you. Right? You ever had a moment where you're honking at someone and you pull up next to them, it's like some little old lady? And you feel like the worst person ever, right? Like, what's she doing? Well, she escaped where she was living and she's out here in the wild. Be patient, right? I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that, but we, we get caught up in the moment of it of like, you did this to me, I'm going to do this to you. That's going to make it. Delete that off the internet for our live stream, people. It's going to get passed around to all the assisted living homes in Torrington. We're going to. We're not picketers down the road. I need to stop. I, I could take this joke on and on. Really, I could. All of a sudden, moments like you, you come at me, I'm going to come at you. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. You slander me, I'm going to slander you. you. You betray my confidence, I'm going to betray your confidence. You don't think I know some stuff about you? I'll share what I know about you. It's a temptation for us, isn't it? We get all defensive, we get all angry. I'm going to tell them. They started. I'm going to finish it. A little bit of hood in you, right? Deep down in there, right? That angry tone, the fleshly tone. Oh, I, I've, been, I've suffered an injustice, so I'm going to inflict an injustice in response. Jesus is such a beautiful model for us here. He's being sinned against. That This is evil. This is not justice. And yet his lips don't strike back in anger. They don't strike back in sin. His hands don't respond in sin. He restrains himself to obey the Father. Christian, even when you're suffering, you don't get an out just because life's hard. First Peter says to this, I love that Peter taught us this. He says, hey, if you're a Christian, you're called to this. I love it. What, we, what am I called to? Pastor, tell me what I'm called to. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Hereunto are you called, because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled or mocked, did not revile again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. What am I called to? I'm called to suffer like Jesus. That when I'm mocked or ridiculed or betrayed, because I don't have to get all of this right now. I love this. How did, how did Jesus do this? Verse 23, he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. You know what one of the most spiritual things you can do when you've been sinned against is? Take a breath and be relieved that you don't have to be the judge. I don't have to be the judge right now. I don't have to hand out justice right now for what I've received. I'm going to trust the Father who I know will work out justice in his good time. I don't know about you, but when I get sinned against, I really, really like to respond. 
And it is so painful to sit with people sometimes if you're in a marriage relationship and the whole marriage is just throwing grenades at each other. Well, you did this. Well, you did this. Well, you did this. Well, you did this. Both of you stink. Can we just admit that all of us stink, right? We just get in this blame game of just focusing so much. Well, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. And you did this to me, well, I'm going to do this to you. And guess what? If you live together with that person, you promise to live together with that person for the rest of your life, you're going to do lots of things to hurt that person. And that person will do lots of things to hurt you. And if you get caught in this cycle of always having to respond with your own jab, that's going to be a long, miserable marriage. It's going to be a long, miserable relationship. It's painful to see that. No, no one's restraining their lips. No one's using discretion. No one's being wise. No one is suffering like Jesus, who, although he was sinned against greatly on the cross, what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Jesus is our example for pain and suffering and rejection. You will be rejected. You will be betrayed. You will be mocked. You will be slandered. But you have a choice. Will I respond like the world coaches me to respond? Or will I choose to respond and pattern my life after Jesus? May he restrain our tongues. May he restrain our hands. And help us to trust him even when that's not naturally our posture. So Jesus is rejected by Peter, his friend. He's rejected by these mockers, these betrayers, these blasphemers. And then thirdly, he's rejected by the religious leaders. Verse 66, and as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said to them, if I tell you, you would not believe. And if I also ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. So here are these religious leaders that take him from the beating he's received in the high priest's house, and they bring him into kind of the official courtroom scene of, of the religious crowd there in Jerusalem. Move from the temple guards now and kind of into interrogation time with the religious leaders. And they have one question really for him. Tell us, are you the Christ, he says in verse 67. Are you the Christ? That title is interesting. That title is the word for Messiah, the one that they would have been waiting for. It's not really the title that Jesus often refers to himself as. We usually see him call himself the Son of Man. Jesus refers to himself that way. So why would they pick the Messiah? Why would they say, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Well, because there was this idea going around in first century Israel that the Messiah was going to be the one that's going to come and sit on King David's throne and establish the kingdom of Israel and get rid of the Romans. He's going to be this kind of revolutionary hero. And so they're trying to get Jesus to identify with these false expectations and make that much easier for his crucifixion from the Romans, right? He's saying he's the Messiah. He's saying he's here to, to root you guys out. You guys should take care of that, right? They're trying to get, get him caught up. But Jesus, that, that's really never been his aim, by the way. He wasn't here to create this earthly government or structure of his kingdom at that point. He, he one day will return and establish his kingdom in a new way. But right now, his, his enemies were Satan and death and sin. He, but he says, you know, that, that's, I'm not even going to answer your question. <laughs> I like that. I'm not even going to answer what you have to say because your hearts aren't in this. Your ears aren't even open. So why would I even bless you with an answer? Because I've already told you this. We've had this conversation in public. I've had this conversation with you in private. I've had this conversation with you in the temple, in the synagogue. You already know my answer. Verse 69, but hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Jesus says, you know, I might not answer your question point blank, am I the Messiah or the Christ, because I know what you want to do with that. But let me tell you, after this, I'm going to be in the right hand of God. The Son of Man sitting on the right hand of God. Jesus says that Son of Man, that's a title that it comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This divine God-man who's coming with authority that will rule and reign, pointing to, he says, I am that Son of Man. That's who I am. And they say, oh, are you saying, verse 70, are you the son of God? He says, you say that I am. They said, we don't need any further witness, for we've heard it from his own mouth. The religious leaders think this is going to be the last time they're going to see Jesus. Finally, we're done with this dude. Right? Get him to the Romans. He admitted who he was. And they completely miss what Jesus is saying. He says, the son of man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. They think the last time they're going to see Jesus is hanging on a Roman cross. That's the last time we'll have to see him. We'll silence him. We'll shut him up. We can go about our Passover. He'll be buried. We'll be done with him. We'll preserve our power to judge. We get to judge Jesus. He doesn't get to judge us. That's what they think. And do you see what Jesus does? He says, you remember this thing back in Daniel chapter 7? The son of man character that has all this power, all this authority, the one that rules all nations. He says, that's me. 
That's me. He says, let, let me tell you how this is going to play out. There is going to be a crucifixion. There is going to be a burial, but there is going to be a resurrection. And after that resurrection, there'll be appearances here on earth. And after the appearances, there'll be an ascension into heaven. And after Jesus ascends into heaven, he'll be exalted to the right hand of the Father with all power and authority. He says, you don't get to judge me. Eventually, understand that I will judge you. That one day, you'll stand before me. Right now, you see me in my meekness, willingly being sacrificed. You see me playing the role of the lamb that's led to the slaughter. But do not be confused. One day, you will see me as the lion. This is a warning that Jesus is giving them. And you'd think these super religious guys would get it, right? They know Daniel 7. They know what he's saying, right? Backtrack. Let's, let's make sure we've got our ducks in a row. If this guy's right, you know, if he's true about what he's saying, but no, no, they don't do that. They don't move on their decision. They said, ha, you are the son of God. We've heard it from your lips. Get him to the Romans. So church, let me close with this. First, I want to remind you guys that this, this good news we've started this morning is for you. Like you're going to have a moment like Peter. And I don't know if you did this last week. Maybe you blew it. And you didn't outright deny Jesus, but you did deny his authority in an area of your life. You denied his control in an area of your life. There was a moment that you didn't submit your heart and your will and your words to him. Partly, I want to encourage us that we would respond like Peter and weep over it. That we'd be broken over our betrayal of Jesus, broken over our sins. That we wouldn't take lightly these decisions, but we'd also be restored by the grace of Jesus that we'd see the great lengths that Jesus went to to bring us into the family of God. He will one day not just say, you know what, hey, get, come into heaven, but ultimately he's also got a purpose for us today. And maybe you need to hear this news in your life. The gospel is for you. The gospel transforms you. I want our church to be a church full of people who declares and demonstrates the good news of what Jesus can do in a life, the change that Jesus can bring to a life. They'll bring the good news to, of the gospel to broken, messy people all over our community. This past week, I spent some time in the mall walking around aimlessly trying to think through what to buy my wife for her birthday, um, kind of walking around. There's just people everywhere. Santa's there. It's cool, right? It was, every, it was, it was popular, right? It was the week before Thanksgiving. And I just, for some reason, I'm walking around. I was kind of marinating this message in my mind and my heart a little bit, and I just saw so many people. So many people, busy and running from place to place and getting their shopping done. And I just had this question in my mind, like, I wonder how many of these people that I'm walking by know what great lengths God has gone to to rescue them from their sin. And I sat there and I thought, like, look at all of these people. All of these people, do they know how many of them are carrying guilt and shame about things that they did? And they wonder, is there some kind of forgiveness or something that can wash them clean just have this real profound sense of like a burden for all these people and so you know we come here we see a lot of the same faces and we hug and we rejoice and we see one another and we bless one another but i hope that we don't just enjoy god's grace we let it shape us in a way that we become a conduit for god's grace to other people don't just enjoy the grace of god and i hope you do enjoy the grace of god drink deeply from that cup but also who, who do i need to declare this good news to who are you going to share this message with? Jesus has been rejected so I can be accepted. There's people right now on my street. There's people right now in my schools sitting in condemnation. They need to hear the good news. They don't have to stay there. That Jesus has come to redeem them. Will God use us and send us? Jesus rejected by his friend. Jesus rejected by those who blaspheme him. Jesus rejected, rejected by the religious leaders who should be welcoming him. What can we learn? What can we grow in? May God help us to have hope. When we blow it, control, self-control, spirit control, when we're sinned against, and the understanding that one day Jesus will rightly judge all that is here as he's exalted on the right hand of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for this word, and we thank you for this scripture, and I just want to say this morning, thank you that you are a God of grace and mercy and compassion. I thank you this morning. This story of Peter doesn't end in denial, but the God, you are so gracious and so kind 
that after your resurrection, you appear to him and you say, if you love me, go and feed my sheep. I, I just want to say to our people, God, would you speak that word over us in this room? Those that believe that you won't forgive them or that believe that you would never want to work through them. Jesus, I pray that you would transform our hearts. Help us to think correctly and rightly about your grace and that you would use us as broken, messy people to declare the forgiveness and joy and life and peace and freedom that we have received is not from us getting better and trying harder, but it's found in you. That we've experienced it. We've tasted it. We know your mercy. We've experienced your grace. We know your love. We know that your blood is sufficient for us. We know, and God, we pray that many in our communities and our families this week would come to know you. God, you would use us. Thank you, God, for the great lengths that you went to to rescue us from the pit of hell and what we deserve. The joy that we have in our hearts this morning, God, is not one of accomplishment. The joy in our hearts is one of understanding of what you have done for us, of knowing that you stepped into what we deserve so that we can enjoy what you have earned. I'm going to every head remain bowed, every eye remain closed just for a minute. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what, Andrew, I have blown it. And I've messed up, I've fallen short, I've done things that I said I would never do. I've got some real world consequences of things that I'm walking through. There's some relationships that have been damaged. There's some trust that's been broken. There's some healing that needs to go forth. But this morning, I, I had bought into the lie of Satan that because of my shortcomings that God doesn't have a purpose for me anymore. There's nothing that I can do or offer based on the sins that I've committed. This morning, I see the restoration and the grace of Jesus that was offered to Peter. And this morning, my heart's encouraged. And I just want to come to Jesus and say, God, if you have something I can do, a way that I can serve, a way that I can share your good news, may my story of brokenness show your extravagant grace to somebody else. Maybe you're in the room and you've been suffering some injustice recently. There's been things said about you that aren't true. Someone's speaking over you words that are condemning. Someone passing you over. And you feel this unjust kind of treatment you've been sinned against. May we learn from the model of Jesus how to respond in those situations. Entrusting them to the one who judges well and rightly. But I don't have to exact my vengeance. I don't have to swing back when they swing at me. Maybe you're in the room and you say, you know what? I, I don't know that I've ever quite understood the lengths that Jesus went to to have a relationship with me, to forgive me of my sin. It would be a mistake for me this morning not to offer to you the reason for which Jesus did all of this. The Bible says that you and I are born sinners. We weren't just born sinners, we chose to be sinners. We fall short of God's standard of perfection and that sin, the Bible says, has a punishment from a holy God that is eternal separation from God. Condemnation poured out upon our brokenness, our sinfulness, our selfishness. But Jesus in this text, what he's doing, he lived a perfect human life. God in human flesh come to this world living a completely perfect, completely sinless life. And when he goes through these beatings, when he goes through these accusations, when he goes through this trial, when he's going to go to the cross, those are all things that you and I deserve. And he does all of that in our place. He is rejected by his father. He's rejected by man. So that you and I can be accepted and forgiven. The Bible says the only thing we need to receive that forgiveness is a heart of repentance for the brokenness and sinfulness that required this sacrifice and a heart of faith and trust in Jesus. So right there where you sit this morning, you can find your eternity settled, your forgiveness established, received from Jesus. And may we see the beauty of being broken before him, that he can take the worst sinners and give them purpose and a mission, an opportunity to share what they've learned from their seasons of brokenness. May God help us. And if you have any questions about that, we'd love to talk with you. Share more about the, the love of Jesus and what he wants to forgive you of, the sins that you're guilty of, the grace that he has for you. We'd love to rejoice in that as well. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace, your forgiveness, your love. Father, this morning I am struck with the moment of Peter's denial. His eyes locking with you. 
and the brokenness and the shame of what he feels. Father, I know that feeling of the moment of doing things that we said we wouldn't do, of falling short, of sinning in ways we couldn't imagine. And I thank you for the end of the story and the extravagant grace and mercy that in that moment when you lock eyes with Peter, you know I'm going to die for that sin too. And I pray that we would walk in gratitude this week, the extravagant grace that we've received. It's in Jesus' name I pray all these things.